This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, welcome to this edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we are very pleased to welcome and very happy to be doing a two-part series on investing in private placements covering uh, bridge loans for commercial real estate and other types of limited partnerships and due diligence. This is going to be the due diligence part of this two-part series with Kirkland Capital. So I really hope that you enjoy the content that we're bringing with you today. Today on the download, streaming services are continuing to struggle with subscriber numbers as Hulu, Disney Plus, and Netflix have all put out uh, updated subscriber numbers that are missing the mark. <laughs> now, this is a combination of a few things with uh, content creation and and people just uh, not liking the rate price increases that a lot of them are putting out there, notably Netflix continuing to increase their rates and also cut down on password sharing. But it's just hard to see that these things are actually improving in the post-COVID-19 world with saw a huge boom in their share price and user base uh, during that time. But now we're starting to see a retraction from that market. Where people are consuming their media is kind of anyone's guess. It's hard to say from the earnings calls that these people have put out. But unfortunately, we are seeing lower subscriber numbers, especially with the likes of Disney Plus and the installation of their old CEO, Bob Iger, being a core tenant of what he's trying to improve is the online and the digital media consumption and the subscriber base to their to their on-demand media. So with these companies starting to languish and starting to see some of these share prices fall, it's going to be interesting to see where we watch these markets go from here on out. The continued rate increases are actually starting to benefit some consumers now with consumer rates on things like money markets and CDs actually seeing their first measurable increases in 15 years with the likes of Capital One, Truist, and JP Morgan Chase all starting to increase their rates that are being offered to people on their money market and CD accounts, with some accounts even going up with CDs at Capital One up to 5%. Again, this is the highest rates that we've seen in 15 years from the big banks. So although rates for things like 30-year mortgages and credit cards are going up, we are starting to see some relief on deposit accounts for individual investors as well. So hopefully your money will be making a little bit more for you that's, quote, just sitting in the bank, while most people understand and hopefully by listening to this podcast that uh, getting your money out there and working for you and in invested is probably the prudent course of action. The money that is just sitting around is going to be earning a little bit more. And that is a good thing for a lot of people that are experiencing these rate price rate price increases that have been going on like clockwork since last year. Now, Jerome Powell has indicated that there is a, a window to this, and he's hoping to end these by mid-May. So we'll see if that actually holds true. We have another Federal Reserve meeting coming up in about two weeks. So we'll kind of wait and see actually what happens with that. But hopefully we see some more relief for the the end user, the 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 regular citizen out there that is just getting hammered by inflation. And lastly, on the download, TikTok has made renewed efforts to show its data protection to the Department of Justice with a recent memo that was just released last week, stating that they are doing extra efforts to try to shield user data from the, uh, the people's Republic of China government and especially the CCP. Now, this is kind of seen by a lot of people as too little too late. The tides have kind of turned against the social media giant, which 
unlike everyone else, like Meta, Snapchat, and Twitter has just seen a boom in popularity and user growth over the past few years. All the other tech companies have just been getting hammered, but TikTok has been kind of the unicorn and doing well. Uh, we are probably going to see some type of significant retraction from the U.S. markets, if not an outright ban in the coming months with the current Senate and legislator uh, probably going to be voting on some stuff regarding the restrictions of this this social media company in the United States. Now, what does this mean for other companies? Well, it might actually be a benefit to people like uh, Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram and also Snapchat. Granted, Twitter is not a publicly traded company anymore, and we've covered that saga ad nauseum on the download over the past year or so. But it will be interesting to see if this does actually inject some more life into the tech sector that is just absolutely hammered over the past year. I believe in in January, Microsoft was trading over 30% down from its high in the previous year of 2022, which is absolutely wild to think of a stalwart like Microsoft just going on such a precipitous slide with regard to market share and share price over the span of just a year. So we'll wait and see what happens with TikTok. Personally, I think that it's probably going to go the direction of increased restrictions. Uh, We've already seen government employees being banned from having it on government owned uh, uh, electronic devices. Uh, And I think with the current sentiment of the House and Senate, we're most likely going to see some type of additional restriction or an outright ban of that company in the United States. So what is bad for another might be good for another. So it's certainly something that might be interesting to see if this does happen, where investments in some other social media companies might actually pay off dividends for investors. But this has been The Download. on the what is what is environmental social and governance investing or esg environmental social and governance investing refers to a set of standards for a company's behavior used by socially conscious investors to screen potential investments ESG criteria considers how a company safeguards the environment, including corporate policies addressing climate change. For example, social criteria examine how it manages relationships with employees, suppliers, customers, and communities where it operates. And governance deals with a company's leadership, executive pay, audits, internal controls, and shareholder rights. This has been an increasing push from a lot of companies to show a more uh, socially conscious effort in their operations and is something that is popping up a lot in uh, different forms of media when it comes to referring to companies. And uh, ESG is definitely something to keep an eye on in the coming years for a push from many different corporations. This is ESG and this has been The What Is. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome on, as part of a two-part series on alternative investing, Chris Carsley with uh, Kirkland Capital Group. We're going to be discussing due diligence, which is probably should be the cornerstone of any investor's um, process when it comes to looking at new investments, because you know, just because something looks good on paper does not necessarily mean it's going to play out like that in real life. So understanding the due diligence, making sure that not only is the investment promising is going to be able to deliver on what they promise. And a big part of that is making sure that you do the front end work and due diligence. So Chris, thank you very much for being with us today. Give us a little bit of background about yourself and your company, and then we'll jump into the topic of today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks, Alex. Um, 
little background on myself. I uh, started my career uh, managing uh, high net worth money and discretionary accounts. Um, got very fortunate to do some background in mathematics and derivatives. Got tapped on the shoulder to join a hedge fund out in Connecticut. Did that for a number of years and then worked for a large fund to fund. Really where my core job was doing exactly some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today, um, going through hundreds and hundreds of different hedge funds and esoteric structures uh, from a from an investment standpoint and being responsible for the due diligence of those and see if they're going to be added to the fund of fund portfolio. And then after that, I kind of broke out into my own and started doing a number of different startups, a lot of different uh, tech and fintech uh, companies that I was involved with. And then lastly, uh, in 2019, um, joined up with my now business partner, uh, Brock Freeman, to launch the Kirkland Income Fund, which is a bridge financing fund that originates uh, loans to microbalance commercial real estate. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to uh, discussing that with him because I've, uh, in, in my career, the alternative space, uh, bridge debt has been something that I've always thought was, you know, really interesting. And I've seen people do very well with it. Uh, but with that comes, you know, another whole inherent side of risk and making sure that you're doing these things correctly. So uh, to the point of what we're going to be talking about today, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, due diligence. I think everyone, you know, probably is at least tangentially familiar with, you know, doing research on something. Um, but, sure. you know, when it comes to placing your capital with someone, making sure that they're going to be good uh, stewards of your hard-earned capital is, you know, a completely different thing than just saying, oh, well, you know, I read a recipe book, now I can bake a cake. Um, you know, it's uh, it's making sure you do doing due diligence in a effective manner is really important. So there's kind of three different categories that you broke out in some of the information you sent me, um, being investment due diligence, operational, and business due diligence. Yep. So let's basically start with the investment due diligence of what exactly that kind of means and maybe some good tips for people that are looking at, you know, a new investment, especially when it comes to, you know, the more private realm, you know, it's easy if someone's publicly traded to get a lot of information, but especially in the private sector, whether it's startup and fintech or commercial real estate and all the different kind of nuances that go into doing any of those types of investments, because it's not just straight equity, it can be debt, it can be convertible debt, it can be limited partnerships, LLCs, all these things have their own different flavor. But again, yep. high level, what's it look like for doing investment due diligence on some of these types of alternatives? Well, yeah, good point. I mean, uh, I always laugh when I go give speeches to some people. I always say, can someone give me the definition of an alternate investment? And I kind of turn the coin over them and I say, well, it's actually easier to define what it's not. And really, it's everything outside of your just traditional long and, you know, stock, uh, you know, investments, um, your bond and uh, equity investments. So what happens is now you have this broad universe of some of the things you listed and another probably a hundred other different types that are available that could be on some list that an investor is looking at. Um, and like you said, there are three pieces that, and and really how I frame this is really how a lot of the, uh, you know, professional due diligence people were looking, looking at large consultants and large fund of funds break down their process of going in and looking at a variety of different alternatives. Um, the one easy part, and I don't know if you want to bring up the deck or something, if somebody wants to look at that. Um, I mean, it is, it is a good follow along for people who might be, um, you know, listening in. Um, the first step, of three is um, the investment due diligence. Now, this is the fun part. This is the part where people go in and they understand 
what type of instruments are being traded? What market is the fund investing in? You know, where where are where's your dollars being deployed and how are they being deployed? So you're talking about what's the objective of the fund? What is that strategy? And one of the things that you also have to understand in this investment process is, well, what kind of drift and style drift is what the actual term is, is what they call it, is not everybody locks themselves down to doing just one thing. They allow a, a basket of things to occur in their portfolio. And that's super important for investors to understand because the portfolio you invested in, you know, say day one, you may not be in that same portfolio a year, two years later. So it's really, really important to have that ongoing monitoring and understanding of the flexibility in the investment side of what uh, this fund could do. And, and that pertains to everything. Now, that could be hedge funds. That could be a private debt fund. That could be a venture fund. Um, really understanding what they are allowed to do. Um, and are you okay with that? Um, the investment due diligence also goes into and what a lot of people you know, they get they get sucked into this is looking at some of the numbers and the investment balance. Um, you know, so it's like, well, wait a second. I understand returns are super important. You want to understand that historically, but it's equally as important to understand, wait a second, um, let's not get caught into being a lemming following those large performance numbers. Let's go in and understand the nature of well, what happened in certain time periods, understanding those numbers from a standpoint of what they call like sometimes attribution. You know, what were we invested at the time that we outperformed? What were we invested in or what happened in a market cycle when the fund underperformed? Um, that'll give you a lot of information from an investment standpoint. And also you can ask questions of the investment manager of well, benchmarks. You know, do they benchmark themselves? Um, you know, what do they think their best benchmark is? And does that make sense to you? Because one of the things that, um, you know, if you're going to go out and invest in a public security you know, it might be easy to ascertain, hey, I'm going to create a basket of individual tech stocks and I might compare that to the NASDAQ or some other, um, you know, custom uh, basket of tech stocks to create a benchmark. It becomes a little bit more difficult in alternative investments to find effective benchmarks. So sometimes the best people to dive in and ask is, well, what do you think your effective benchmark is the people who are running the fund? And I mean, if they haven't thought about a benchmark or, haven't sort of marked themselves or don't understand how to think about that, you know, that might be a little bit of worrisome right there with regards to your investment due diligence is do they actually understand, you know, what they're doing and how they're performing over a certain benchmark. I mean, you got to remember private investments are often, they charge a lot more fees than public. Um, and you really want to make sure that those fees are justified, that these people are beating a benchmark and they're creating an excess return, um, you know, from an investment standpoint. Uh, next is, uh, you know, operational due diligence, so, not really well, at, at a high. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Real quick to that point, though, with regard to benchmarking. I mean, that's especially maybe let's dig in a little bit of that, because that's especially difficult in the alternative space, because even, <laughs> you know, take take commercial real estate, for example, you know, mm -hmm. investing in, you know, let's say I'm in the I-4 corridor in Florida between Tampa and Orlando, looking at, you know, value add B properties of, you know, 80 to 150 doors. That's even if you take that exact same property model and you stick it in Phoenix, Arizona, or you stick it in, let's say, yep. 
um, Sandusky, Ohio, you know, the benchmarking on some of these things can be incredibly difficult because if you have a like kind asset just on paper, okay, 80 to fit, you know, 80 to 150 X, Y, and Z, there's so many extraneous factors that go into that. And, you know, that's just one category. If you're looking at like fintech, uh, you know, if you're looking at any type of other alternatives, I would imagine that's probably really hard. Are there any types of ways that people can navigate that of saying, okay, well, you know, what are some things to look at? Because if you ask, you know, a fund manager or a GP to say, hey, benchmark this against other stuff, if you didn't know any better, and I were to say, okay, you know, here's what we've done, we've done this type of property, this asset class here, but how analogous are they to each other? And are there any kind of broad standards to say, hey, here's how we draw the comparisons and the corollaries between these two to make sure that, you know, you're comparing apples to apples and not, you know, apples to rocks, you know? Yep. No, and you, you've you taken it to the next level. There's actually two ways to think about benchmarks. And the one that you mentioned is I want to get down to that apples to apples, um, whether it be real estate or, you know, a lot of other, you, you got to find what they call a best fit. And a lot of that can be shown, you know, mathematically, but sometimes it can just be understood, you know, qualitatively and from a standard from logic. And so in your example, yeah, you wouldn't want to look at something in particular and say, hey, I'm in Phoenix and I'm, you know, doing multifamily. I want to go run my benchmark that just is compiled of things that are in Florida. Totally different. Um, You'd want a local comparison and, you know, there you assume some competitive analysis was done by the manager. And if you are actually involved in other properties or know other people in other properties that you can get some of that data, you might be able to create your own benchmark. That's one way to think about benchmarking. The other way to think about benchmarking, and this is a little bit more of an institutional thought, is how am I doing compared to something that would be investable, that was public and easy to access? So if I'm not going to go do a private piece of real estate, I'm going to go look at REITs within that certain area or certain geography, or sometimes with like, hey, I want to run a diversified portfolio. I'm going to look at the entire, you know, in REIT index as a benchmark. There again, it depends on what kind of fit and what you're trying to achieve in your benchmarking. But that's another way to think about is, am I going to deploy money to private or am I going to deploy to public? And so with regards to benchmarking, you hear a lot of people that they're trying to find a benchmark that's investable. um, And, you know, because there's, there are non-investable benchmarks, um, and some people just, you know, in their in their process, they don't feel that that's terribly useful. But um, that's another way to think about benchmarking at a broader level: is not just only am I comparing myself to a microcosm of, hey, comparing this immediate apple to apple, but if I wanted to go create a portfolio. And I, you know, the battle between private and public investments, what do I actually own? That's another way to think about, you know, did a broad portfolio of say multifamily or a variety of different commercial properties, did that beat my private investment? Um, It's another form of how to look at benchmarks. Um, So yeah, benchmarking is extremely complex and it's very time consuming, um, but it's something to where, like I was saying earlier, you know, you may not have time as an investor going, be able to dive into this. If you haven't done this for a long period of time, you may not be able to have enough data within your own data sets to create a, a benchmark or have the access, or maybe you're not paying for CoStar, CoreLogic, or some other data center. Um, another way to think about it is, well, okay, wait, what does the manager thought about this? How do they think? How are they justifying that they're adding value and justifying their fees? Um and there again, I sort of lean towards like, if they haven't thought of that, 
it doesn't mean it's not a good investment. It just might be something that, uh, you know, okay, let's go talk to some other managers and see if they've thought deeper about their process. And I think an interesting point you bring up there is kind of the usefulness of the comparative analysis between your own research on saying, okay, let's draw, let's draw the comparisons between what is public, like what is publicly available and investable, what is not investable and what is being offered here versus maybe what the actual fund manager or GP is actually telling you of their comparatives and seeing where those things match up and where they differ. But I mean, also further, I think that's probably a really key point is looking at where the where you find those differences, kind of like, you know, doing any type of financial audit, you know, where are the differences? Why are there differences? Yep. Um, you know, is it simply accounting or is it a different viewpoint or is there something missing in that data set? But another just kind of thing I would add in there too is that, you know, what adds to the complexity of this, at least in my mind, and I'm sure this would probably be a conversation, but I like want to say it anyway, it's just the nature of the markets, at least right now, being just swinging so wildly. I mean, looking at comparative comparatively of you know what's going on in publicly available things, say REITs, and you have people like Blackstone freezing withdrawals from their largest REIT um, for a period of time. So trying to draw yeah. that comparison to like what could otherwise be a relatively healthy private commercial real estate market um, can make that even more difficult for making that type of comparison or, you know, in, in tech startups, you know, tech has been getting slaughtered for the past yep. two years. I mean, you have Microsoft from their high in the beginning of 2022 sliding 30% and, you know, being outbeaten by the larger indexes across the board. You know, it's just, it, it's a tough one to try to draw some comparisons when one market is, has appear, appearances of having more health and stability, even if you have things like, you know, cap tape, um, cap rates getting compressed so much by the, um, you know, continued interest rate hikes. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to take into account there, but um, I think what I'm trying to say is, is you, you hit it on the head that it's a tough thing to do. Um, when, and, that, and that's, yeah. And I mean, and what you've sort of gleaned into there is another aspect of due diligence with regards to the estimates. Once you understand what tools are being used and what the strategy is, you then have to understand the economic occurrences that are going on currently or what you think might happen in the future, because that'll give you an indication of, well, I'm not condoning timing because timing is extremely difficult, um, but it might be able to give you an idea of, well, okay, maybe I'll allocate a little less to this strategy because as I see historically, um, this particular asset class performed, you know, you know, less, you know, I don't want to say poorly, but, you, you know, less effectively than other asset classes, given these occurrences economically. Um, so there again, diving in and understanding, I mean, that's just kind of another step of the investment due diligence is that manager who's been through market cycles, who's seen and has the ability to understand how they need to be more defensive or more aggressive given their strategy. Yeah. And also um, one of the issues with, with saying that too, is that, um, another issue with that is that for the past, you know, since 2007 or to the, yeah, 2007 or eight, we really haven't had much of a cycle. I mean, we've had like a little fluctuation, but it's, I mean, it's been a cycle straight up. Yeah. It's I mean, been it's a 45, always, it's, it's been yeah, a 45 it's, degree angle. Yeah. It's um, been a, it's been a risk on cycle for a and, very, and very that's, long And that's time. the interesting part too, is that, um, you know, getting people with the breadth of experience to navigate that is tough right now. Um, yeah, Cause right. you just have to have people that are you know, just old enough to have been, you know, investing in a meaningful way back in basically the 2000s was the last big correction that happened. And then further to that, the early 90s and the Gulf War and then the credit and loan crisis in the 80s. But like, 
you know, if you had, if you had an investor that had been managing, you know, for 15 years in 2007, they had seen a lot. If you have a manager that's been managing for 15 years in 2023, they haven't seen a whole lot. So. Yeah. They, they saw the tail end of um, a pretty good beating. Um, yeah. And that's, it's, it is kind of funny. You mentioned that there's, you know, and that, that applies to not only alternative investments, that's investment yeah. management as a whole. Yeah. You're now in a situation where, um, a lot of, you know, relatively smart people have been managing money for a decade and, and they really haven't seen real problems. Um, and I know for a fact, a lot of people are getting caught a little flat footed in how fast and, you know, what they have to do in their portfolio or how they need to think about it. Cause you know, 2022 did open up, um, a very, uh, you know, bright light for a lot of people of it's not simply, easy enough to just go long equity and everything's going to be okay. And I think it's, you know, one of the reasons we're having this conversation today is it is in people's face and it is a subject of a great importance right now that alternatives are something that you need to first educate yourself on to what we're talking about here, understand how do I want to think about the various steps of due diligence. And then lastly, which we won't cover today because we won't have time is how do we access these things? I mean, where yeah. do we get them from? That's a super, super difficult uh, question to ask uh, or answer, I should say. Um, the access to this is really stumping a number of people as they come into this space, um, because I think a lot of people are going into things that they don't really have the proper education on, nor have they properly due diligence, and they got it from said source, and they're just trusting that source gave them the right tool. Yeah, it's um, uh, they may and, not know. Okay, and God we trust, but everyone else bring collateral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah. so, so yeah, yeah, let's, I, yeah, let's see what we can get into. But yeah, I mean, I'm certainly. I mean, I, yeah, let's I don't move have to let's, let's let's. I mean, let's move to the next slide. Make sure we kind of yeah. covered some stuff, and we'll kind of hit uh, operational due diligence and business due diligence as we move on. Um, I'm not going to read this slide. Uh, one thing I really want to state: due diligence starts with education, but the process of what we're doing here and how you need to think about this as an investor is you are trying to develop a process for yourself that develops comfort, but really you're trying to get to your no faster. A lot of documents come with uh, private investments. I mean, I've seen PPMs ranging, most of them are in the 80s to 90 pages. I've seen some that are 220 plus. I mean, that is a lot of legal reading to understand what a fund does. Um, what I want to sort of lean on is due diligence is an entire process, and we will walk through a number of different pieces to think about at a very high level. Unfortunately, we won't have time to dive into too many of them. But think about this in the back of your brain. I want to develop a series of points of due diligence that allow me to get to my no faster so that when I pull up a 200-page PPM, I can read 20 to 25 pages, home in on the things that are important to me. And if this fund doesn't meet those, we're done. Move on. Now, the problem is, is if they do meet it, well, then you got to go read the rest of that document. That's the unfortunate downside. You know, you, yeah. you, you really want to make sure you don't miss something. Um, um, so... Let's keep that in the back of your brain. That's that's sort of how I view and how, from a professional standpoint, a lot of people sort of, you know, when I was at a large fund of fund, you're seeing dozens and dozens of funds. Um, it's kind of a upside down way to think about it, but you're trying to get to your no fast. 
I need to weed through people quickly. I cannot get stuck in the numbers. I can't get stuck in, you know, a variety of nuances about a fund. If all of a sudden, 10 pages later, I run into something that's a game stopper for me. Yeah. So let's move on to the next slide there. Um, we talked a little bit about this. I mean, market class, general investment strategy, some of the, you know, things that we talk about here, geographic diversification of investments. Um, I, I will, you will move through this because we've really touched a lot of this already, but on the uh, right-hand side of that slide there is you're also trying to understand, is this repeatable? Lots of investments out there are really, really timely. Uh, one thing is being a hedge fund trader, you realize things wax and wane. There's trades that come on and off. And sometimes you might not see them repeat themselves for a number of years. Um, a trade you did three years ago, all of a sudden reappears. Um, that actually happens. When you're investing in a fund, you want to understand how this trade is going to be repeatable throughout years for a multitude of time periods. So it's got to be repeatable. Otherwise, you know, then you've got to start thinking, wait a second, if I'm investing in this fund, how long am I in it? And, um, you know, does the fund close down or should I be out because, the, you know, the bulk of the opportunity is going to be gone? Um, so that's something to think about is if you're thinking about longer term investments, the repeatability of the strategy. Um, and then what breaks the trade? You know, assessment of possibly a failure of execution. I mean, there is no holy grail in investments. Anyone who tells you they have found something that works no matter what, well, then they must be a lot smarter than some of the smartest people out there and a lot smarter than me. Um, everything waxes and wanes. Everything can break. Um, I, I'll give you a sort of a story. We did a lot of pure arbitrage trading um, that's very, very hard to break because it's non-correlated to a number of different things. And it's basically about as risk-free as you can get given uh, the nature of what arbitrage is supposed to be. But our belief was, hey, in 2006 and seven, we sat around saying, wow, we have a series of trades that the only thing that could possibly break this would be a major failure of a global financial partner. Bingo. That's never going to, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> well, we got that wrong. And, you know, all of a sudden our trades started breaking. Um, so, um, and for people who don't know, I'm referencing 2008 and the failure of Lehman. Um, we just didn't think that was possible, um, but everything can break. So understanding what breaks the trade and ask the manager that, you know, if he's been doing this for a while, he's probably seen it break. So what breaks it? Yeah. Or, but again, going back to what we're talking about, it's, you know, with with how good the markets have been for so long, that's a tough one to also hammer down too. Because I mean, someone could have a decade of experience, which is no shake. I mean, that's that's a long time to be somewhere. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, granted, you know, the older you get, the the less impressive that is. But you know, a ten year career in the same industry doing the same thing with success is a pretty good thing to hang your hat on. Yeah. But in reality, you know, how, how how much has that you know system been stressed? A lot. There's a lot of stress right now um, across a lot of different platforms. Yeah. Um, there's 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 entire organizations that are put together around education. I mean, one of them uh, I represent here in the Pacific Northwest is the Chartered Alternative Investment Association, and they now have created a number of different articles where you're out there trying to supply more information and education around alternative investments to your registered investment advisors and your wealth managers. Um, a lot of these guys, as you stated, have only been doing this for 10 years. Um, they're smart guys, but let's just call a spade a spade. They haven't needed to really dive in or bring alternative investments to their clients in a material way. Um, 
you know, well, now it's kind of in their face and there's a lot of people that they now have to catch up and they have to figure out how they're going to do that in an effective way to continue to diversify and add value to their clients' accounts, which absolutely, I, mean, I think I think most of them will figure it out. But it's definitely a an uh-oh moment of where, oops, I got to go do something new slightly. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, let's move on. Well, I mean, let's, uh, I mean, Alex, if you had anything else to talk about on, on the investment side, um, I mean, I, can, I know that's, I, the, can... I know that's the fascinating side <laughs> that everyone wants to talk about, but let's dive into the not so fascinating, but in some ways, monumentally important, um, operational due diligence. Uh, I'll give a quick definition. Um, you know, operational due diligence is, the operations and the systems and software and the people and all the processes that all circle around the investment strategy. So everything that's directly related to the investment process, um, that's what sort of is defined as operational due diligence. And I'm going to kind of skip ahead here a little bit just so we can kind of like tie this all together. The business due diligence side is everything related to, you know, infrastructure, office, the physical aspects of the business, because let's just you just be upfront here. If you're investing in an alternative investment, you are hiring a manager, which is running a business that oversees this investment product. Mm -hmm. So you are tied in a material way to that business. And we'll talk a little bit about that and, and some of the things that as you're doing due diligence on the business side that are important, you know, business continuity, longevity, um, those kinds of issues. But operational due diligence, as you can see here is, well, okay, Technology is in everyone's face. You know, what systems do they have in place? What processes and procedures circle around that technology? What people do they have in the various stages? I mean, do they have someone? It's not just, you now. you may invest in a small fund that's only got, you know, two or three guys. Um, we used to joke back in the day, it was very, very common to invest in hedge funds that were, you know, two guys, a dog and a Bloomberg. Uh, and they did very, very well. We still think the dog was the smartest one of the three, but, um, you know, that was very common to see very, very small niche shops like that. Um, but you may have relatively small shops where, okay, well, what do these people do? What do they cover? It's very important for you to understand that you have coverage across everything that's going to be needed from an operational standpoint. What's their plan of growth? Um, what, you know, who are they looking to hire? Um, where do they see as they grow AUM, um, where their immediate hires are going to be? Um, and then the ongoing process and procedure around that. Most funds will have um, some type of process and procedure. They might have actually turned it into a manual. Um, you know, some of your bigger funds will definitely have a process and procedure manual. It's one of those things where some of them will send it to you. Some of them you might have to do an on-site verification and they'll let you peruse through it when you're on site. Um, I've run into, you know, funds that, you know, they won't send you their process and procedure manuals, but you can review them, you know, in office. Um, and then depending on the nature, if you're going into real estate and you're looking at modeling and, okay, let's walk through a model. Um, let's walk through how they think about, you know, doing the assessment of an investment. If you're going to go talk to a hedge fund, you know, you can get the opportunities to say, Hey, let's walk through the technology. Let's sit on the desk with that trader and walk through, hey, what was a trade that, you know, walk me through how you discovered the trade, how you analyzed it, the execution, and then, you know, if it's an older trade, how they exited. Um, you know, one of the things I like to go in also is go through and say, show me something that failed and why it failed. Everyone makes mistakes. I mean, anyone says that 
you know, I'm doing thousands and thousands of investments and I've never lost there again, I would be very, very concerned about that. Um, I don't know anyone who's been doing this for 20 years plus that hasn't lost money in something. Um, so identify within the strategy that's related to the investment you're about to make, what broke, how did it broke and what did they learn from it? Let's just be honest. I mean, humans learn most not from their successes, but from when you get punched in the face, whoa, I'm not going to do that again. Um, um, and that's important information. I mean, how many decks have you seen where you get to the end of the deck and they're showing you their investments and it's all things they've won. Hey, I did really great on these six investments. Well, that really just irritates me actually. A lot of green, just, and, there's a lot of green yeah, and black ink. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of, a lot of hockey sticks and look at how well I did with this. And that's great, but I want to understand how you failed Yeah, why it failed. And how you came up with the idea and the assumptions you made at the beginning of that idea, it broke and, and, and what you learned from it. That's really important to understand how your manager um, and how his team or how his technology and process will help support and identify those issues and then let them solve them. Because if you've got a manager that, you know, panicked and ran off and hid in the corner and during tough times, maybe that's not the one you want, especially given the time period we're in right now, there's a lot of tough times coming uh, for a variety of different strategies. Um, and yeah. you need that guy who's been there and has that process in place and has lost money previously and be like, wait a second, I've seen this before. Yeah, and absolutely. One thing you kind of briefly touched on that I, I'm i a big champion of is that, you know, it's, I think that the, for, for most investors, I mean, granted, if you're very new, you have a whole other kind of hill to climb with understanding performances and, you know, economic trends and seeing, you know, like what the underlying investment is. And again, this is just a broad statement of saying, okay, whether it's real estate, fintech, startups, X, Y, or Z, you know, if you kind of understand what you're investing in, that's great. But it's like you said, a really important thing is that you're at the end of the day, you're, you're investing in a business in some form or fashion, whether that is sure. shares of a, shares of a private C corp, whether that's a limited partnership interest, LLC membership, um, some type of, you know, classified uh, private security, you know, you're investing in the operational side of a business. And a huge part that I really think is overlooked by a lot of people is operational continuity. Um, I had yep. a, a guy on here, um, that was just, we were discussing that. And he brought up a really good point is he said that early on in my career, we were invested um, and we had placed funds with a, a limited, uh, it was a commercial real estate limited partnership. And that was one of the things that really fell apart was the continuity, uh, the business continuity. One of the yeah. uh, general partners died. Uh, the partnership was held directly in his name. Um, he had, it was going to, and his voting membership went to probate. Um you know, it's it's just a, a huge nightmare. And then there was another one. I think it actually might have been the same one. It was kind of like a confluence of just hold these issues. And the other, like one of the other guys just decided that he was gonna, you know, go on a Kerouac esque like walkabout, and just no one could contact him. Uh, I think he ended up like showing up in Costa Rica or something. And they're like, no one ran off with money. You know, there wasn't any fraud per se, but it's just it kneecaps that business operation and also yep. the you know, the safekeeping of these clients' capital. It's like, we can't operate. We have one general partner, no ability to vote on anything. And, you know, the operation just crumbles. So, you know, they may have a rock solid, you know, business plan and, you know, everything looks right. Okay, hey, they showed us how they made money. They showed us how they, when they failed to make money, what they learned from that and all this stuff can be great. But, you know, if you have one person that's 70 years old at the helm with no continuity of business plan, 
and they croak or they you can't be reached, then that's all great, but it makes no difference if the business can't function. Yeah, and what you're referencing there and what some people will see in documents is that key person risk. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be either key man or key person will be the actual term that you'll see in documents. You need to understand who those people are. Are they grounded? And two, have they, has the team thought about and do they have uh, a process in place to, hey, this guy's going to go on a walkabout. Who's covering when he's gone? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it's a little worrisome where it's you got one guy in control of everything and there's no one else to control anything okay you better have a lot of faith that that guy stays pretty sane um and two then you've got okay whether he's sane or not there's the proverbial bus okay he gets hit by a bus what is the process of how everything is unwound and how you get your money back i mean you want to see that this group has thought about that that Mm -hmm. there is a process there are people in place to make that happen um because the last thing you want to do is all of a sudden you can't get a hold of anything nothing's really happening you've got live investments hope to god they're not you know any kind of market sensitivity um so you've got time to work it out but if you don't have the ability to unwind the fund or have a vote um to basically take over management to unwind you know that's a material problem and i mean you know on this slide that I've, that's on the screen here this number keeps on changing. So I just, the, the spread gets wider and wider uh, and estimated 50 to 66% of fund failures. They don't have anything to do with the investment. They have to do with like what Alex and I are talking about here. It's, it's the people running it, the business overseeing the investments is where the failure actually occurred. And so, um, and you see that like, you know, I'm right now I'm in real estate and the old saying there is, well, it, you know, most of your problems aren't the property it's the operator. That's usually where the the problem starts. The property might suffer secondarily, but it all started with the operator not doing something they should have been doing. Um, And that falls into this class of operational due diligence. And, you know, it's kind of the red haired stepchild of due diligence because it's not terribly exciting, but hopefully we've conveyed that you really need to you know, put together a checklist, go in and see if you can verify a number of different, you know, operational procedures and processes and people that they have in place. Um, and I know that's difficult because out of COVID, we've, you know, the professionals are back at it where they're visiting in office. But I understand sometimes it's very difficult. You're looking at a fund that's operated in California and you're in New York or vice versa. It might be hard for you to go do some level of, you know, on-site verification. But you know, and I know that I've got a slide on this, but that's where you got to go in and you got to get those references. You've got to go in and do that extra step of you know, background checks. Um, have you know, have these people done, you know, their own background checks? Can they supply those things? Um, and what's the timeliness of it? You know, just because the guy was stable five years ago, who knows? He might not be stable today. Um, those are the kinds of different pieces of information you might add to your process. I mean, let's go back to this is really this entire speech is about, hey, these are things to think about. But at the end of the day, you're developing your own process of due diligence and coming up with, you know, your hot buttons of like, hey, these are the things I want to make sure that are in my process. If I'm going to be deploying large amounts of money to somebody, I want to make sure that I've, you know, crossed my T's and dotted my I's. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So external events there is last. I mean, that's, 
we've touched a little bit about that. It's, it's business continuity. Um, you want to have to, that these people are thinking about, you know, safety of data, um, you know, power outages. Um, I mean, most people will have in their documents, listen, act of God. Hurricanes in Florida. And, you know, hurricanes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, act of God's, I mean, he, he, they're not something someone can control, but it's something to where do they have offsites? Do they have, you know, in today's world, I don't think I've run into any fund that doesn't have data stored cloud-based or um, if they're uh, a little bit more institutional or larger, maybe they have a fund admin that's carrying a lot of data. Obviously data is carried separately in, in, a, in, a, in a bank data set. So even if something was lost on a physical basis at the fund level, the guy's PC was crushed by a tree that should be repieced somewhere or backed up, um, you know, cloud-based. I think that's pretty pretty common these days, but just make sure they have, if they're going to do that, well, then obviously, you know, you've got, um, you know, uh, attacks, cyber attacks. So, okay, what software do they have in place? Um, it was something I'll laugh. I mean, you'll, you'll laugh. I mean, when I was doing due diligence, you know, 12, 14 years ago, no one really, you, you kind of mentioned about safety, but it wasn't really a core element of due diligence. But in today's age, cyber attacks, stealing information, hacking, ransomware, you know, having an understanding of how they're thinking about that and what they've put in place to deal with that. That's real in today's world. And it's something that you should probably add to your process is really yeah. like, you know, what have they thought about today? Um, you know, and, you know, how how can the investment be affected uh, upon different types of uh, cyber attacks? Yeah. And obviously so. things are, some industries are way more susceptible than others. Um, right. You know, something that's dealing, um, you know, like you said, the the, the two guys, a dog and a, a Bloomberg terminal um, is a little bit more susceptible to someone getting in there and placing trades than someone with, you know, just a commercial real estate building, you know, they can't go in there and yeah. sell the property. But again, it should be something that everyone looks at. Um, but the degrees of what they put out there and the emphasis that they put on there should be somewhat centric to you know, and obviously that's an expense too. If they're spending a million dollars on cybersecurity and they don't need to, well, maybe that's indicative of them also mismanaging expenses in other places. Exactly, and 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 that's that is a that is a, a good point. And we can move on to the next slide. Is part of the operational due diligence is to understand the efficiencies because the operations of the business is supposed to create efficiencies around their ability to carry out. The investment strategy um that's the end goal of what you want to see when you complete your due diligence some strategies actually require certain systems and operations in place depending on the type of trade one of the trades i used to do was very event driven so we had to have networks and systems and processes in place with you know third parties to facilitate those trades um you know so you know understand what it takes to make the trade uh and then go in and kind of fill it from there um, we talked a little bit about this. Um, this is, um, you know, now we're really moving on to, uh, you know, the not so fun part of due diligence is, you know, a little bit more of the mundane of, but this is that business due diligence we talked about, you know, you know, do they have a physical office? Don't be surprised in today's world. People have realized with technology and the capability of communication across teams um, and in the investment world, not everyone needs to be sitting in the same room to be effective. Um, we're not a marketing firm coming up with new marketing ads. I, I mean, you know, there's a number of ways to cross share data spreadsheets and analysis. Um, you know, even though I always was in an office, you'd be amazed how many times you just sat in your office while you were in the main office and never really went to go see anybody. 
Yeah. Um, you know, that was very investment like. I mean, it's not like you were, you know, if you were hanging out with somebody else in their own office, it was probably because, you know, you were having a cup of coffee with them or something. Um, but you know, don't be surprised um if you have people who, you know, they, they don't have a physical office. Now, if you're going to deal with a larger fund that maybe has 20, 30, 100 people, well, they probably have more than one office. Um, um, and that's something to consider. It's like, okay, where is that? Um, and like I said, this is more about all this aspect is that business continuity aspect. And also the assessment, do they have the right infrastructure in place to support the operations and the investment strategy? Um, do they have the right office equipment? I mean, uh, you know, are, are, you know, are the employees working in, you know, you know, an open warehouse that, you know, was once a, you know, oil factory. I mean, you know, I'm just making things up, but it's like, you know, are the employees safe? Are they happy? Um, it's like any other business. You want to understand that there's going to be that continuity and that belief in the company, even at the employee level. Um, yeah. and, and they're excited to be there. Um, and that could, that sort of bleeds into that human resources. And then we already talked a little bit about the technology and IT support. This is where you dive in to really understand that cybersecurity aspects of, you know, of the business itself and that infrastructure. Sure. Um, we can move on to the next one, but those are the three sort of core aspects. And then sort of the next, next bit, you know, we, we've talked around a ton of these different ideas, but you can kind of put these down as sort of areas of focus. I mean, you're going to dive in and understand the fund structure that's going to be listed out in the private placement memorandum and the operating agreement. Really understand what have they built because you're about to be an investor in it. You're about to invest in this company. What have they built? How have they built it? We already talked about, well, what is the strategy? Um, administration, is it internal? Is it external? Is it both? Um, do, do, do they run... Um, you know, shadow accounting for middle and back office internally, but they have an external fund administrator. Um, if you're dealing with <clears throat> a larger fund or a fund who um, understands they're going to have to, you know, grow assets, uh, most likely they'll have a third party administrator. Um, okay, who is that administrator? You know, are they someone reputable or, and I kid you not, I have done analysis on a fund where it was a brother in law's accounting firm was the administrator for the fund oh that's great that's a huge red flag i was like are you kidding me really i'm like or it's, it's um, like uh what madoff's accounting firm was in a strip mall in jersey yeah well yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you might want to think twice about that one it's like, um, yeah. but yeah i mean you'd be amazed i mean these sound like stupid hindsight's 2020 but this stuff happens. And if you don't ask, well, you don't know. Um, yeah. So understand who their fund administrator is, understand how they integrate, what's their process. Because a fund administrator is not just some accountant that sits in a different office. They should have a level of oversight. They should be watching transactions. They are there to be that third party looking over their shoulder on a day-to-day -day operational accounting standpoint. I mean, that's really how I view a fund administrator. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also the one thing I want to understand is make sure your manager doesn't think their fund administrator is their CFO. Yeah. I, I kid you not. I know I say these things and you're like, that's the stupidest thing you've ever heard, but I've literally had a, a few funds like get excited about the idea of like, well, I'm going to get this fund administrator because then I don't have to have an accountant. That'll be my CFO. Okay. It is a third party business. They don't carry any liability to what occurs. And if you read an engagement agreement with a fund administrator carefully, 
because that could could be a piece of your due diligence. Like, hey, I send me your, you know, the engagement letter with your fund administrator. It is now standard language post 2008. The administrator will carry absolutely no liability for anything that happens. So um, it is not a fund CFO. So don't don't ever believe that. Um, we talked a little bit about performance. Um, yeah, performance is important. I usually view it as I want to understand attribution so I can understand how do I break it down and where are they making their returns from? You know, one of the great examples is a long short hedge fund. Um, it's very, very difficult to find a long short hedge fund that consistently creates excess returns on the short side. It's very difficult to short. Anyone who tells you otherwise, you should figure out how they're doing it or walk away from them because it is extremely difficult, even for the professionals who've been doing it for a very long time to do it consistently. Sure. But breaking like, what was their return on the short side? What was their return on the long side? A fund who's doing that should be able to break that apart for you. I like, they should already have it. It shouldn't be like, oh, let me get back to you and let me create that for you. It should be, I've got that. Because I would worry if I was investing in a long short hedge fund and they weren't thinking about the world that way. Yeah. Um, you know, they should already have it broken apart and be able to talk to you in great detail to that attribution. Um, portfolio risk. Um, this kind of goes back to a little bit of the conversation of like benchmarks, but the same ideas. How do they view their risk? What do they look out for? And are they putting any mitigating hedges on um, or they just recognize this risk and there's no cost effective hedge? That's, that's a totally legitimate answer. I mean, don't, don't, don't because someone's not hedging doesn't mean they're wrong. It may not be an effective hedge or a cost effective hedge um, for the fund. Um, and, you know, you want to basically, you know, you're investing in this manager because they've done the due diligence. They're the expert. And if you get to the end of the due diligence and you feel like, well, I don't know sure if this guy's really an expert at what he does, well, then don't invest. But um, understand how they think about the risk. Um, legal. Um, lots of you've got securities legal, you've got corporate legal, but some trades actually require specialty legal. I've got a friend who runs an appraisal right fund. Great trade. Um but you better understand how the laws work and you better have a legal connection and network in that, or it's really hard to pull that trade off. Um, so there again, you know, legal is not just, oh, did they file their securities correctly? Are they 506C? You know, what's their exemptions? I mean, that's important. You want to understand they're up to date um, and you can get that information. But is there a legal component like for my debt fund? Well, we have dedicated real estate legal. Because we will run into inevitably and already have a foreclosure in a portfolio. Okay, great. I need, I need, you know, network in that state that has the legal background to deal with foreclosures of commercial properties. Great. Who is that person? What's your resource? And have you used it before? You know, so that's the legal aspect. Um, you know, then we talked about references earlier. Get your references, do your background checks, understand who these people are. You'd be amazed when you dive in. There were some um, frauds back in the day. One that jumps out at me was a fund called Bayou, that if you'd actually looked at some of the backgrounds of some of the people involved, there was some clear sketchiness that would have like, maybe it wouldn't have made you say no, but it would have made you maybe think twice. And maybe there again, that's your hot button of like, yeah, you know, if you've done something sketchy in the past, I just, lepers don't change their spots. I don't, I don't believe in it. I'm out. You know, maybe that's 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 your your motto. Uh, that's your what they call non-negotiable. 
Um, and that's another way to think about those, you know, these, what I'm sort of saying is your hot buttons is maybe you build a list of non-negotiables. Like, yes, I'm going to look at this investment and I can't have any of these and, or it's a no. Um, and then we talked a little bit about on-site verification. So um, that may be difficult. Um, and there again, a lot of people may not have offices. So um, we're in a little bit of a different dynamic of that right now, but try to verify as much as you can. Um, and if you're deploying a large amount of money, let's say you're you know, working for uh, you know, a mid-sized or fairly large family office, you should probably have that as part of your due diligence process. You're flying out there and you're visiting these people physically, face, names, looking at files, looking through research, sitting with traders, sitting with CFOs, you know, really walking through their entire process. One of the things I used to do is I called it the life of a trade. I would go through and grab, I would try to grab it randomly. I don't like let, I don't like to let people pick their trades they want to show me. I want to pick them because I don't want people staging trades of like how it all worked perfectly. Um, try to look at their trade book and say, what about that trade? Let's walk through that one. Um, and, you know, you would walk through the entire process of how they came up with it. And and what they're doing on an ongoing you know basis if it's still a live trade in their in their portfolio, um, I'm not going to lie to you that takes time. Um, you know I think my record for sitting in someone's office was eight hours from end to end of me completing on-site due diligence. So I mean, you know you yeah. got to you, you got to pick what you want to what you want to do. Let's uh, jump on to the next slide here. Um, I know we dive into tons of these things. I'm not going to go through all these. Um, but the key thing there is, is, I mean, a lot of things that we've already talked about, you know, did this get, did, did they build a house or a business made of straw or did they build it made of brick? Do they have redundancies in place to help them catch and mitigate the risks that they've ident identified? Um, and there's some of the service providers, you know, who's their administrator banking? Do they require a prime brokerage? You know, if we've talked about real estate a few times here. <laughs> Well, real estate doesn't have a prime broker, so you obviously wouldn't have that as a service provider. But if you're dealing with anyone who's dealing with marketable securities, they're probably going to have a prime broker. You know, who's their custodian? Legal, tax, audit. Are they audited? I mean, that's something that's come around where, you, you know, you know, who's actually auditing? There's another third party looking over the shoulder. Um, I wouldn't hang your hat on audits, but it's a good data point to have um, and walk through the numbers just to make sure things balance up. Um, cause an auditor, you know, they'll go through and verify a lot of stuff. Trust me, we're audited and man, the number of questions they ask is just a plethora. I mean, oh, yeah. no, we're, we're, um, we're audited as well. It's a <laughs> fun process, but it's one of those, it's one of those kind of easy things that helps to keep people honest. I mean, if someone's, yep. if someone's out and about to pull the, pull the wool over someone's eyes, you know, there are ways to do that, but it's one of those things where it keeps the, the, the lazy people honest. You know, it's Correct. it's one of those things where it's like, oh, we got to do an audible. Maybe I should make sure this stuff is done, which should you be investing with someone that's lazy? I mean, that's kind of that human aspect of it. it's like make sure they're motivated to be good stewards and champions of your capital. Because um, at the end of the day, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. It's taken us the better part of an hour to get through it all. But if you're talking about deploying, you know, again, if, you know, I'd say probably most of the people here are, you know, managing family offices, but if you're talking about your capital on a personal basis, you know, if that's a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000, you know, the vast majority of people, that's a lot of money, um, a lot of money. You know, taking a, taking a few days out of your time, maybe taking some PTO, a couple hundred dollars in flights, 
you know, if you're spending twelve hundred dollars, two thousand dollars on due diligence, that's still cheap insurance. If you found something, you know, what's what's that cost compared to something going wrong? And I tell people right. that, you know, it's yeah, this, you know, to to make sure you do something correctly is is you know can be a bit garrulous but at the same time you have to look at the cost benefit you know if, if is this my expense worth it um you know what's what's the cost of it goes goes belly up it's i yeah. guarantee you that's going to be a much more expensive class to take than you know a wasted few days of traveling to wherever these people are located or sitting down and devoting your time to doing the research and i couldn't have said it better i mean alex i mean due diligence costs money and takes time it's just there's no way around it if you want to do it but to your point okay wow is it better for me to spend that couple thousand dollars to get it done in the time if i'm going to be writing a hundred two hundred thousand dollar check and all of a sudden that ends up to be a zero that's a much more expensive tuition <laughs> yeah yeah let's uh, let's just jump on i mean because we've covered a lot of the fund structure um um the investment strategy here again I don't want to spend too much time on this. This is something, I mean, this deck is available for people, you know, post this seminar. I want to make this available. Uh, and I already mentioned this, understand what breaks the trade. Understand how they actually walk through all these pieces of what Mardics, what products, what counterparties are needed. How are they sourcing? How is it repeatable? Um, you know, do they use leverage? I mean, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. A lot of people, especially right now, um, because leverage is difficult, a lot of people sort of frown on the use of leverage. Um, leverage is not necessarily a very bad tool as long as it's controlled and used for the right aspect. I mean, we don't currently use leverage in our fund, but I'll be honest with you, the only reason I don't use leverage in our fund is because I can't find someone who would actually offer me leverage that understands you've got to match the terms of the leverage with the basis of my business. I can't write 12-month paper and then tell you that you have the right to call the leverage line every 90 days. That's an asset liability mismatch, and you'd be amazed. I've been offered that multiple times. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why would I walk into an asset liability mismatch? And for you people listening to this, asset liability mismatches, everyone claims I'll never do that again because that actually occurs in every major gap event. But as we get farther away from an event like 08, all of a sudden now I see tons and tons of people willingly walking into asset liability mismatches thinking, oh, well, it's not going to happen to me. Sure, it won't. All right. Um, understanding AUM and capacity. One of the biggest things that we'll talk about a little bit later on here is one of the red flags is valuation. Um, a lot of investments require some level of, of valuation, uh, initial valuation, ongoing valuation, exit valuation, especially if you're in you know, venture. Um, or, you know, it depends on how your fees are charged. Um, you know, if they're jacking the value of the portfolio, yet nothing's been recognized and they're taking larger and larger fees based on a perceived value, you want to understand how that's calculated because that's your money that's being paid out. Um, now they may have a clawback clause in there, which means if they took more money earlier and the value didn't materialize, they've got to put money back in. Um, we won't go down that rabbit hole right now, but that's something else to think about. Um, understanding you know, how valuation impacts, you know, everything for you as the investor, because it is, you know, depending on the nature of when you enter the fund, it might affect your entrance. It affects your ongoing performance during what your time in the fund, and it might, you know, massively impact your exit. Um, yep. Can we jump to the next slide? Or Alex, if you got something? No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's about as accurate as you can, you can make it on that. Yeah. Um, administration, 
you know, we, we, we talked about this. I mean, this is, um, you know, you know, and I, I have a quote here and, and don't fall prey. And well, we saw this, I mean, <laughs> I mean, with the B-Breed and KKR and everyone else, I mean, just because someone manages billions of dollars doesn't mean something can't go wrong. I mean, and I kind of call it institutional quality here. Those shops are obviously institutional quality, but it still doesn't mean something can't cause a hiccup. Um, and so don't be swayed by, you might run into somebody who's running 50, 100 million. They may have just a rocket ship and they're tight. And they're maybe better operated than somebody who's running a billion dollars. Um, you know, you know, be aware of that. Don't be swayed by, wow, this guy must be really smart. He's running a billion dollars. Don't don't fall prey to that. Um, and I know a lot of people do because they wow, this guy's really big fun. He must be smart. I mean, yeah, um, take take Sam Bankman Fried and FTX, take any of the big yep. I mean, you look at these huge numbers, let's uh, you know, it's all that glitters is not gold. Um, you know, big, big numbers and three commas are are always fun to have, but eh, you know, the guy that's managing 50 million of capital might be a much better steward than the guy that's managing 50 billion. It's that's all right. to do with the due diligence, what's actually going on. Exactly. Well put. So um, we can move on from uh, administration. Next slide, please. Um, we talked about some of this, you know, the portfolio risk. Um, you know, some of this is, you know, there's internal risk management, risk related to the, you know, hey, my stock that I'm buying might go up or down, or I'm short, I might get short squeezed out, or the stock rises on my short. I mean, there's obvious inherent risks related to the the strategy and the instruments used, but there could be a number of risks like counterparty risk that most people didn't really see happening in 08, which just really hit everybody square in the face and they didn't have time to react to it. Um, one of the other problems was no one was looking for it. Um, and my saying there is... <laughs> When things, I always laugh when everyone's trying to figure out what's going to break next and what's going to be the big problem. Okay, if I'm talking about it and so is everyone else, that means we're looking at it and we're going to actively see it coming. So that's not going to be the problem. Yeah. It, it, it might be a part of a much larger problem, but most gap events and impacts to alternative investments are caused by the dog you didn't see. You're watching one dog and the guy, the dog behind you bit you. And you're like, well, okay, I didn't see that one coming. That's what creates these gap events. That's what creates these liquidity events, at least in my history of what I've seen break and catch people off guard. If you're, if everyone's talking about this is going to be a problem, okay, well, that's probably not actually, it may be a problem, but it's not going to be the problem that catches you off guard that creates a massive devaluation of your investment. Um, yeah. So that's something to be aware of. Or it's already um, the problem and not the one that's coming up. Yeah. Well, and then there's a matter of like, you know, okay, well, can there be some other shoe that drops? Um, you can run into it. I mean, I know that we're not supposed to say this or some read some article. We're not supposed to talk about poly crisis because it's like the, the get out of jail free card for asset managers these days. Well, I couldn't have possibly, you know, staved off these losses in 2022 because there were just so many problems. I couldn't keep up with all of them. Um, it's a little bit of a cop out, in my opinion, but um, and there is some truth into it that you can have multiple things happen um, that can stack up on each other. Sure. Um, next slide. Um, legal. This is the the bottom basement of excitement when it comes to alternative investments. Um, this is super important. This is the rules of the game. I always tell people. Don't um, don't try to play Monopoly against somebody who's read the rules and you didn't. 
um, you're going to lose. And all these documents that I list here, obviously everyone focuses on the PPM and the OA. Yes, those are the very initial documents to understand the basis of what you're getting into. And they are very large and ardu arduous documents. But um, the investment deck, it's a marketing piece. It's okay. Um, and, you know, you know, if you can go through it, I mean, I always suggest reading through it and see if you can find something what's, hey, did they say something in the investment duck that doesn't match something else? I always love catching people off guard where they, you know, say one thing in one place and say another in a, in a different document. Um, the DDQ, um, a lot of smaller funds won't have this document. Um, it's a very institutional requirement that kind of came out of 2008. It's, it's the due diligence questionnaire. It is... Uh, a document that runs through a number of different operational and business factors about a business um, and, and it sort of ties the investment strategy to the operations and business all within one document with a set of questions um, that are answered. Um, so don't be surprised if you run into smaller funds that don't have something like that. Um, um, but if you're investing in a larger fund, they should definitely have that document. Compliance manuals there, again, uh, really something only for very large documents or very complex teams trying to build code of ethics and compliance for operation at the fund level and the manager. Um, obviously, you'll have entity verifications. You know, you know, the company you're about to invest in, is it real? I know there, again, that sounds crazy that someone would do that, but I have known some frauds in the past where people are like schlepping an idea and the entity never even existed. Um um, licensing is in place, make sure that they've done their licensing and it's updated in place, the securities filings. Um, and like I said earlier, they may have a policy and procedures manual. Um, it, it helps to understand how do they think about their day when they're going through and walking through their various important pieces of their business to run the investment strategy. Yep. Um, and I know a lot of people rely on this and this doesn't apply to all lawyers. You can't be absolute in any means. There's always a probability distribution, but you should find a broader network when doing due diligence rather than I just sent the PPM to my lawyer to review. Um, lawyers are smart people, but not all lawyers are doing private investments and private investment review as a profession. Yeah. So just make sure that you're working with the right people and you have a larger network of perhaps lawyers, investment professionals, and other people within your network that you can rely on, um, perhaps to help you um, vet and understand, you know, what you're looking to write a check to. Um, I have seen some mistakes made with that where something was clearly not right. And, you know, it was handed off to a lawyer and he came back and said, everything looked good. Um, well, structurally, I'm sure everything looked good, but the way that it was sort of played out, um, the way the PPM was written, um, it, it really favored the manager from a fee standpoint, a lot of different occurrences that ended up hurting the investors. Um, next slide. Um, we already talked about this, um, but one of the things that for references is get investors that are in the fund. Um, maybe an investor that's not in the fund, uh, why'd they leave? Um, and interview the service providers. Um, now I will tell you, there's a trick to service providers. They won't talk to you unless you have some kind of authorization from the manager. So like, if you call me and you're like, Hey, I'd like to call your fund administrator. They're most likely not going to take your phone call unless there's an email chain of me saying, Hey, this person's going to call you and please answer his questions. 
Um, so don't be offended when you get a phone number and a name for some prime broker or somebody like that. And they don't talk to you because I mean, they basically don't work for you. They work for the fund. Um, and there needs to be some type of authorization, either verbal or email, giving them authorization to answer certain questions. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, that's a procedural aspect there. If you're going to go through that process, um, next slide. Um, I'm not going to dive into these, but these are things that you can think about. These are actual red flags. They are high occurrence items that cause failures at funds more often than not historically. Um, these are large issues that you need to focus on with regards to, hey, these are things that have historically caused problems. Not necessarily, I mean, you gotta understand, not necessarily frauds, but just misrepresentations or accounting errors, a variety of different things occurred um, in these scenarios of investment allocations. Um, I'll give you a quick example of some big managers manage more than two funds. Some of those funds overlap in strategy. Well, okay, if I have a certain limited amount I can invest in a company, well, how do I allocate between one fund and another? Well, if you're only in one fund, you really want to understand how that allocation works because I'll give you a real example. And I wrote a paper for the CAIA uh, with a friend of mine, John Canaro. He actually, we co-wrote this paper about uh, a fund in London that had a partner fund and an investor fund. And all somehow a lot of different better trades were put into the partner fund and didn't go into the investment fund. So there's a quick example of that. Um, valuations, we talked a little bit about that. Super important on so many different fronts. You need to understand how these things are valued. Um, and I know a lot of smaller funds will run internal valuations. You need to go to the nth degree on understanding their stress tests and understand how they're putting these things together. Um, especially now, because what you're seeing in real estate is a lot of people's valuations were a little over the top and now they're seeing NOIs fall, rents are kind of coming down in certain areas. And now you're looking at a situation of where there's potentially some refinancing problems in a number of different, uh, you know, properties. Oh, so, absolutely. I mean, um, you have those, yeah. that's, a, that's a big issue with the the five-year, four-year exits that were projected and all these, you know, prospectuses and PPMs now running up a, against a big, like, if they can't get financing, that cap table is getting smashed. Um, you know, the cap rates are just getting hammered down, which... It was to be expected, but it's also goes back into what was their initial strategy. Um, you know, how is that being paid out and how bad is that affecting what was expected by the investor? Correct. Yeah. Um, third party transactions, um, related third parties. Um, you do see this a lot in, in, in a number of different alternative investment structures. Um, and it sounds like, wow, you, you guys are totally vertically integrated. Well, that's great. But is there fee savings? Is there cost savings? Is there efficiencies that are captured between those third parties? And that's something you need to understand because there should be contracts and engagements between those related parties. They are separate entities, even though you might have cross ownership from the guy who manages the fund that you're invested in and these other parties. Um, they should have engagements and understandings between them so that there's controls to process. Um, or otherwise, and this is really tough to find, over time, all of a sudden, hey, you're getting a break because maybe I own my own property manager that's managing my property, but then all of a sudden I increase fees two years later. Yeah. Okay, well, should I have been able to do that? Isn't there a document restricting that? Well, what happened? Um, so 
don't be fooled with uh, the the pitch of I'm vertically integrated. I'm gonna I have all this. It's gonna be so much more efficient. Okay, well, that, that may be true, but there's a next level of conflicts of interest that need to be vetted uh, within the you know third party transaction aspect. Um, Cross fund trades. This is a little bit out of real estate, more into um, perhaps you know even venture, but more so, more so in the hedge fund world where I run two funds and I can trade an asset from one fund to another. Okay, well, how did that benefit both funds? You need to understand and understand the, the there again those relationships and the limitations, or the process and procedure behind the ability to trade between two funds because you may only be in one of them, and if you're getting dumped garbage out of another fund, that's not going to go well for you in the long run. Um, use of external partners and advisors. I've seen this more in venture lately than not. Um, and it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it has caused trouble because what they end up doing is, is I'm outsourcing functionality and research and other aspects to in a third party. And there's fees related to that that aren't covered in the management fee. So that's where the problem occurred was, Hey, I've got a management fee for my, my fund. And then I've got another whole fee because I don't have a team big enough or I don't have the expertise in something. So I outsource it. And what I did was I put that expense to the fund. So it becomes a fund expense instead of being captured in the management fee. So really what happened to the investors in this situation was you were now paying full freight in the management fee and the manager decided to load up the fund expenses because they were using these external parties to complete the process uh, for, for a variety of different you know, companies. You need to understand how that's going to be treated and understand that your fees might have been one thing one day and all of a sudden they're totally different the next day. Yeah. Um, and if you're unaware, I have run into investors that do this. Everyone always talks about management fee and incentive fee. Okay, there's a third fee. And if you don't believe me, go read your PPMs. Because I've had a lot of people tell me there's no third fee. There is. There's management fees, there's fund expenses, and there's incentive fees. Not all funds will have all three, but a lot of them do. And you got to understand what is being put directly to the fund as a fund expense, what is covered by management fees, and then the impact of incentive. So there again, go read your documents, because I have had multitude of people tell me that they didn't know there was a fund expense. And I'm like, really? Did you read your documents? Because usually... I mean, you go to jail if you don't put it in your documents. So people usually aren't that dumb, but they don't really bring it in bold face and neon for you what fund expenses are. Mm -hmm. It'll be in the document, but you got to find it um, and you'll understand what they can put to fund expenses. Um, and then asset liability, duration. <laughs> we've talked about that. The asset yeah. liability mismatch is literally the bane of people's existence when things start to go wrong, especially yep. in a gap event. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, let's, uh, but you can dive into those. There's some number of papers about those things. Um, but these are some key aspects that have caused multiple problems for alternative investments uh, historically. I, I um, completely agree with you on that. That's, that's, it really hits right at the core of what, I mean, definitely a little bit more detailed than, you know, kind of what I, you know, normally just kind of tell people in general um, of the 30,000 foot view, but this is incredibly important for people to understand of uh, that, especially when you want a more comprehensive look, this is a great place to start. Um, granted, you know, just like I think people are getting across by listening to Chris, this can be, you know, inherently, so it can be as complex as you want to make it. Um, yep. You need to find that efficiency between, you know, 
high speed, low drag, you know, you know, if you spend three years doing due diligence and you miss the investment window, well, that's not, that's equally as bad because you've missed out on all the money you can make. But at the same time, you know, figuring out that, you know, any investment is going to involve risk. You try to mitigate it as much as possible to the point you're comfortable and then you have to make that step forward. Um, So don't get analysis paralysis with this kind of stuff. Um, You know, eventually, you know, try to make, make a decision, but these should be some great tools for you to say, okay, great. Here's the things I need to focus on because not all the things we covered today are, you know, necessarily specific to what you're investing in. You know, you have to also pick, you know, which ones are, you know, going to be effective. You know, if you're investing in a limited, uh, you know, commercial real estate venture, they're not going to have a custodian holding their securities. They're not in a, they're not dealing in OTC markets and trades and stuff like that. So just understand which ones you need to look at, which ones you don't. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and to sort of repeat, I mean, Alex, you, you said it perfectly. And back to what I said earlier is this is, an overview of a lot of how the big institutions look at things and how they dive in. You need to kind of take some of these pieces and define what are your non-negotiables? What are your things that will allow you to get to your no faster? Absolutely. Well, again, this has been, uh, this is going to be uh, the the part of uh, the two-part series of <laughs> in, investing. So I'm really happy that you ha- that you're on today with us, Chris, covering this very important aspect of due diligence in um, in the context of this. And I'm really excited to also be discussing um, gap funding and how that works in the context of commercial real estate, because that's an important aspect of understanding risk and due diligence is also in understanding something new as well. So again, Chris, I really appreciate you being on with us today. Um, for people that maybe you're listening to the second or first, would you mind giving us your contact information, how people can get in touch with Kirkland if they'd like to learn more about your offerings? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, There's a slide here. If we slide to it, Ralph, if you want to move to the slide where it's just the contact. Yeah. Um, You can, our website, kirklandcapitalgroup.com. You can reach me, uh, Chris Carsley at kirklandcapitalgroup.com. You got questions. You want to talk about due diligence further. You're looking at a current investment. um, Please reach out to me. I'd, I'd love to help however I can. Fantastic, Chris. Well, thank you very much for being a part of this. Again, this is going to be a fantastic two-part series. This has been the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.